This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming up on Stu Does America, the topic of student loan forgiveness begs the obvious question, how the hell do we pay for it? The Manhattan Institute's Brian Riedel is here to help us figure it out. And listen, as a nerd, I'm happy for Steve Kornacki to get some attention, but people's sexiest man alive? I mean, really? Let's leave the brainless, oiled-up, muscle-bulgy celebrity worship to the morons who deserve it, like Chris Evans. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube and hit the little bell that gives you notifications every single time we post. Why would you want to miss something? And don't miss an episode on podcast either. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. And uh, you let me know that uh, you're part of the Cool Kids Club when you put in the review. It's great. Whatever. It's just the thing we do here. And we need conservative media now more than ever. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 30 bucks. We're coming up on the holiday season and surely state governments will be working tirelessly on ways that we can all safely see our friends and families to celebrate. Or maybe they're just going to lock us all in cages until COVID goes away on its own. Could go either way. So let's do Thanksgiving gone viral. Stu does America. Look, we all know we had some terrible news on election night. And yes, I want a recount too. I would do anything to reverse the result. But sadly, face it, face, just face, face the music here. It's not going to happen. I'm talking, of course, about the re-election of Cory Booker to the Senate. Somehow this guy still has a job after flaming out of the primary like Nancy Pelosi in the first round of a bikini contest. I apologize for the visual. But But somehow Cory Booker is sticking around and continues to have access to his own Twitter account. Why? And what is he using that for? Well, to lecture you about mask wearing, of course. He writes, wearing a mask is not a surrender to liberty. It's an affirmation of love. God, he's just impossible to tolerate. This makes me want to intentionally, honestly, expel and inhale droplets just to spite him. It's an affirmation of love, really. It's so pandering and awful. I think I am officially now anti-love. It's a tough stance to take, but hey, I'm a conservative. I'm supposed to be a hater. We're one week from Thanksgiving, and the media is full fledged horror movie mode right now. The Washington Post wants you to know that there's a damn good chance somebody at your Thanksgiving table is gonna have the COVID. This is their little chart. Uh, Now, the more this little map is, the more red uh, the area, the better chance that there is that you're sucking in the coronavirus during turkey time. It's obviously pretty bad in the Midwest right now where some areas apparently there's a 100% chance that someone in your 10-person Thanksgiving has COVID. In the South, I guess your chances are more like 20 to 40%. By the way, another stat not shown here, the chances of macaroni and cheese being at my Thanksgiving, 1,000%. It's true. 
But can we zoom in on the uh, other map, not the macaroni and cheese, but the map a little bit here? Um, it says, note, assumes actual case prevalence is 10 times as high as laboratory confirmed case count. 10 times as high? Seriously? It's the sort of estimate they were making back in March when we didn't have any testing at all. And that makes sense. So the source of this map first tweeted about this back on March 10th. He's a biologist at Georgia Tech. Eventually, he turned this concept into a handy-dandy little map and a scientific paper in the journal Nature. Uh, that's, you know, and the map, by, what, by the way, is the thing you're seeing tossed around the Internet constantly right now. It's the rage of all of the Internets. That's where the Washington Post came up with this graphic. But March 10th was another world. We did 2,772 tests on March 10th. Yesterday, we did 1.5 million tests. Yes, we know we're not detecting every single case of coronavirus, but the 10 times estimate is just not rational anymore. This is what the actual source data looks like for this map. Now, it looks kind of similar to the map that we showed you from the Washington Post. Put them side by side, though, and you'll notice something. Huh. Just, if you're on podcast, this is an image you need to see. I will tweet it out from at Stu Does America. The Washington Post map is a lot more red and scary. Now, I'm sure this was just a design choice. Red is so pretty, and it's the color of blood. But there's more. Since this 10 times number is so outdated, the authors of the study added an option at the bottom, select ascertainment bias. The two options you can select are five and 10. Are there really five cases for everyone we detect? Or are there really 10 cases for everyone we detect? This choice is very important. If you choose 10, the whole map lights up red and your Thanksgiving looks like a COVID storm. But if you choose five, look at the difference. There's almost no red on the map at all. Here's the Washington Post map. Uh, all red, all over that north, uh, the Midwest there. And, of course, here's the map from the actual source with a much more reasonable estimate where really only a little red in the Dakotas. That's basically all you have if you're listening on podcast. One more time, here's the scary map from the media. And here's the much less scary map from the actual source. I mean, this is unbelievable. Now, you might fairly say, well, maybe the Washington Post just made a different choice. Maybe they believe the correct estimate is 10 and not five cases for each one we detect. You could say that, but I'm pretty sure that's not true either. The guy who actually created the project tweeted the map today. Zoom in. Here's the whole tweet. Now, if you zoom in, which option did he choose? Ah, he chose five. In fact, he's tweeted different versions of this map out over and over and over again. You have this uh, map here where it's all zoomed in, but if we zoom in a little bit on that little tweet, what did he choose? He chose five. Another tweet here where you can see, again, he's tweeted a link to the map for everyone to see. We zoom in, which what did he choose? He chose five. Another tweet here, this is uh, uh, the map once again. Zoom in one more time, we see he chose five. Not 10 like the Washington Post, but he chose five. Next tweet, uh, you see again, uh, he has the entire map tweeted. We can zoom in easily and see what he chose. He chose five. And one more time, just to make sure the point is absolutely clear, the entire map here, zoom in, he chose five. The guy who authored the paper chooses five every single time. The Washington Post chose 10.
Guess which one gives you the scarier map. But I guess I can't expect people to look at the guy's Twitter account. I mean, that took, I mean, several minutes to put together. If only there was one clear way of understanding which option you should use when you go to the actual website. Here's the site again, uh, and uh, you're going to get very familiar with this. What does it say there in the left-hand column? Quote, based on seroprevalence data and increases in testing, by default, we assume there are, more, there are five times more cases than are being reported, a five-to-one ascertainment bias. Hmm. So they actually had to change the default, which was five, to use the other option, 10. And the author of the study says that based on reality, the real answer is five. But the post chose 10 in November, not March, in November. Got that? Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean you should talk really loudly six inches from all of your relatives next week. The risk is elevated and taking precautions does make sense. But what doesn't make sense is continuing to use this estimate of 10 cases per every detected case, unless you're trying to scare the hell out of everybody. Honestly, I think there's a really good reason to believe the number isn't 10 or 5. A recent study of European countries from the International Journal of Infectious Diseases says, quote, the estimated ratio of the total estimated cases to the observed cases is around the value of 2.3 for all the analyzed countries, not 10, not even five, but 2.3. Look, we've all been in various levels of quarantine hell for eight months. The vast majority of people are going to continue their lives and have Thanksgiving unless they have some very old or very sick relatives. That's okay. We can handle a few precautions here and there to make things safer, but there's no reason for the scaremongering we're seeing from the media. Be honest. Give us reliable information and let us measure and decide what risks we feel are worth taking. And I don't want to preach. I know you don't want to hear me preach. I know that's not why you're here. But I do think it's important to have one major safety tip for a better Thanksgiving. Don't invite Cory Booker. Not because he has COVID, but because he's really annoying. I want to tell you about Fast Blast and how they can help with your intermittent fasting goals. And it's not really about intermittent fasting goals, right? It's, it's goals on how to lose some weight. And I'll, let's be honest about it. It's been, we've got Thanksgiving coming up. We've got Christmas coming up. There's a good chance there's going to be some days where you're just jamming food down your gullet at speeds that are not healthy. Fast Blast has launched a new app to try to solve this for you. It's called Fasten. I love this app. It's free, first of all, and I love that. And it helps you track and monitor your weight loss, uh, your hydration, your mood. It has all sorts of cool features you can use. Plus, it has a countdown clock. So, like, for intermittent fasting, usually there's a period of the day that you would need anything. Um, and maybe it's like, I don't know, say 16 hours uh, you don't eat, and in an eight-hour period you do eat, something like that. We got a little countdown clock that can kind of get you closer and closer. You can see exactly how close you are. It kind of gamifies the weight loss process, which is kind of a fun way to do it. Plus, it, it, it mentally gives you a way to prepare yourself for what's going on. It's not always easy at the beginning, especially if you don't do your own homework and learn about the process, get involved in the communities uh, with Fast Blast. And, and really understand how to do this the right way. Fasten is the app that they have, F-A-S-T-E-N. You can go on your phone right now uh, and click over there, search for Fasten, and you can download it really easily. Or you can just go to fastblast.com slash blaze. Fastblast.com slash blaze is the place to go. For the free app, make sure to go there and get started today. 
fastblast.com slash blaze. All right, let's welcome in Brian Riedel from the Manhattan Institute. Brian, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Stu. Do you have uh, Thanksgiving plans for next week? Uh, my Thanksgiving plans are to stay in with the family, like good quarantining <laughs> families, o- obeying, you know, for, for Governor Newsom and for those who won't, I will quarantine. <laughs> Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it. And I will say, you know, look, we've all been to family gatherings before. There's always at least a certain percentage of the people there you don't actually want to talk to. So if you look at it from the bright side, you can just avoid those people. You know, and after the election, remember last year at Thanksgiving, there were all the articles about how to annoy your family uh, for progressive causes at Thanksgiving. At least we're off the hook on that. Uh, you're not going to have that niece coming home from Oberlin telling you what an evil person you are. <laughs> that's right. That's a great point. That's a great point. Now, one of the things the niece from Oberlin would come back and tell you about is how we absolutely must have student loan forgiveness. This is a moral imperative. These uh, these people owe way too much money. We must get rid of this loans these loans because this is killing uh, you know this generation, and uh, they they you know the American people must bail them out. This is an incredible argument, and, and I feel like we keep coming back to it. How do you how do you make sense of these people? Well, it, it's truly amazing. Let, let's 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 start with the numbers. Two-thirds of millennials have no student debt, either because they didn't go to college or they already paid back their student loans. Of those who do, the typical loan is $28,000, which comes to $200 per month or 4% of their income. So what's the problem? Well, half of all student debt is currently held for graduate school debt, MBAs, law school, uh, medical school. So the question is, how do you look at the economy right now with the recession hitting the working class so hard and say, I know, let's give a trillion dollar bailout to doctors, lawyers, <laughs> and MBA business executives? It's, it, it's insane. But this is what happens when campaigns and lawmakers surround themselves with urban professional 30-somethings for whom their student loans are the biggest crisis in the world and much more important than what's actually happening in the cities and depressed rural areas. That's a great point, because it is uh, if you think about the person who's surrounding these these politicians, it's someone who's highly educated, took a bunch of years of school and is now working for like four dollars an hour uh, under as an intern for a senator somewhere. And that probably is what they're bitching about all the time. I can understand why that would be a big deal for them. I used to work on in the Senate. I've worked on several presidential campaigns. I can only imagine all the memos these poor senators and presidential <laughs> candidates are getting from their staff saying the number one problem in America is my student loan. Please address this. And then they get on the phone and they talk to reporters and say, hey, reporter, are student loans a problem? And the person says, well, my journalism BA cost me $55,000. So, yes, we need to do something about this. There, I, I'm joking around, but there's an actual uh, echo chamber insular effect going on here where the problems of young urban professionals take on outsized importance in the nation's capital. You know, student loans aren't the problem driving inner city poverty or rural depressed areas. But again, this is this is insular Washington, D.C. politics. That's, that's a great point. I, I never thought about it that way. I mean, I kind of focus on the unfairness of it. Right. They, and that is really there. I mean, I, I, I think of a relative that I have who uh, who wound up 
coming out of a high school and working normal jobs for a while and eventually started his own plumbing business where he had to buy a van or buy a van. He had to buy equipment. He had to buy all he had to do all the legal work to open up a business and all these things. And some of that he had to do by taking out loans. Now, his loan doesn't get paid back. He went out there and was trying to be a productive member of society instead of a journalist. Uh, you know, here's a situation where uh, it's unfair to so many people. And yet that doesn't seem to be a concern at all of the left. That's why there is going to be an epic backlash if they do student loan forgiveness. If you'll remember in 2009, the Tea Party came out of a Rick Santelli rant on CNBC Mm -hmm. about people who bought a too expensive house getting their mortgages bailed out. Well, now we're having people who invested in their educations getting their student loans bailed out by their neighbors. This is going to create a massive backlash. You know, basically, if you went to college and paid back your student loans, you are a chump because you're not going to get a refund for what you paid in. If you didn't go to college or, you know, and you're working or you're saying, you know, you're a plumber, as you say, who started your own business, you're not getting any assistance. It's, there's an unfairness issue that I think touches a nerve more than most government spending issues where we're essentially making a chump out of people who in many instances did the right and responsible thing to pay to start their own plumbing business, to pay back their student loans. You're a chump. Yeah, that is really what the message is here. Uh, you know, and it's it's interesting in that like a lot of these big left wing programs are, you could argue, like well-intentioned or, or, or well-targeted, mm-hmm. right? You're trying to help people who are poor and needy. And, and maybe the conservative argument is, well, we can't spend that much or we don't have enough money to cover that. Or maybe that's not the best way to uh, to solve the problem. This is something where you're targeting basically people who, who are going to college. They're the kids usually of people who are well off or doing, uh, you know, are doing well. They're people who have high earning potential for the future in large part. And I, it does feel like there actually might be a backlash not only from the right on something like this, but also from the left. Yeah, and in fact, a lot of li- liberal analysts on social media and liberal economists, uh, like even like Jason Furman, who was mm. uh, pr- President Obama's top economist, have 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 been been critical of this proposal. It, it's the worst use of a trillion dollars. <laughs> um, you know, if you're going to add a trillion dollars to the debt, we're going to bail out doctors, lawyers, MBAs, people who went to private schools and went into huge debt. You know, when you when you when you sign student loans. You're making a commitment and you're making an investment. You are going to earn more money over the course of your lifetime, usually because of your degree. Why shouldn't you pay the cost of your student loan? If you're a doctor and you're going to be making $300,000 for the next 40 years, why shouldn't you be the one to pay back your investment? Why would you dump that cost on somebody else? Mm. So much of this, too, Brian, goes back to the overall structure of, of universities in general. These massively high tuition rates that are propped up by ridiculously cheap government loans in many cases. Uh, the incentive uh, structure for these universities is to charge any amount uh, because it, they will, it will always be funded by cheap loan dollars. They will always be able to rake in more cash. This entire structure is backwards, and and this is why you see the inflation uh, with tuition and everything else involved with college go up so much faster than the rest of the economy. And this is going to make it worse because if we do forgive all $1.6 trillion in student loans, you can assume this is not going to be a one-time thing. Future loans are going to be forgiven too because that's just a matter of fairness. Why should we only benefit one group? Well, in that case, universities are going to raise tuition even higher and students are going to borrow even more because why not? 
if the government's going to wipe out all student loans every five years, then universities can charge as much as they want. You can borrow as much as they want. There'll be no reason to pay attention to prices. There'll be no price sensitivity. And in in effect, this will become a giant trillion-dollar regular grant from the government to universities to jack up tuition as high as they want. And it's a nice little circuitous uh, situation here for the left in which they are propping up institutions that are parroting every little part of their agenda and teaching every young person that, you you know, to be super mega woke and all you need to do is spend money. The government should be covering everything. It really is a kind of a nice little uh, nice little plan if you think about it. Yeah, this is ultimately a permanent bailout to universities. And if you look at what's happening to tuition in the last 30, 40 years, it's gone through the roof. Not because the quality of instructions got any better. It's because universities have been spending so much money on expanding bureaucracies, middle management, administrators have gone through the roof. It's it's not for quality. But as long as they're going to keep getting subsidies from Washington for all of this, it's just going to continue. But there is no free lunch. Eventually, that's going to be paid for by your tax dollars right into their pockets. Uh, Brian, as you you see Biden sort of try to outline what he wants to do as president, um, are you getting a sense yet as to what part of the scale we're on? We know that in the in the primary, he he seemed to run a little bit to the right in the primary and then the left in the general in a very strange sort of way. But he was surrounded by people who were very, very far left and Kamala being one of them. Uh, he tried to play that centrist line there a little bit in the primary as we've come towards, uh, you know, past the general here. He is he moving back towards the right? Is he moving to the left? What's he doing? Well, during the campaign, overall, Biden proposed $11 trillion in additional spending over 10 years, which was certainly not as extreme as Bernie Sanders' $97 trillion or Kamala Harris's $50 trillion, but it was a lot more than the $1 to $2 trillion that had been in the campaigns of Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and Kerry. So even, even his moderate $11 trillion was so much more than everyone else. What's happening right now is Biden is coming to grips with the fact that the Republicans are probably going to control the Senate and the Democrats majority in the House is going to be razor thin. That means he's not going to be able to pass very much of his $11 trillion agenda. The reason student loan forgiveness has moved to the top is because the president might try might try to do this through executive order. He basically might direct government not to collect about a trillion dollars in student loans that are currently owed to the government. This is, of course, of questionable legality. (laughs) But the reason he's looking down this route is because it's something he could do by executive order and get around Mitch McConnell and get around the Republicans and, 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 and small Democratic House majority. So ultimately, the Biden agenda is going to be constrained, but you know, he's going to look for creative ways to use the pen to, to implement a lot of the spending. No, that's interesting. So instead of saying I need to pass a new spending policy, it's I'm not going to collect funds and that he may be able to do by going around McConnell just through executive order. I mean, is that going I'm going down a, the, a few steps here. But if he does do that, is there any chance that that's constitutional? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure about it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm no attorney and I'm not even going to try to play one on TV. <laughs> but my my understanding is that the government does have limited reach to forgive or, you know, student loans in special circumstances like natural disasters. He would have to declare a permanent natural disaster. 
Additionally, there are laws on the books that says if money is owed to the government, they have to take all reasonable steps to collect it. This is not a reasonable step to collect it. So I know for sure there would be significant challenges in court if 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 Biden tries to do this. I can't say for sure who's going to win, but I think it's a real stretch to declare this a natural disaster <laughs> and declare that it never has to be repaid again. Yeah, and that is, to be fair, one of the things I was worried about after, I mean, because Trump kind of did this thing with this natural or this state of emergency, which had real problems with, and you just mm-hmm. know the left is going to try to exploit everything that, every, every line Trump inched his toes over a little bit, they're going to jump over by about 20 feet, I think, here in the next uh, few years. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, COVID money? We know that uh, I think everyone kind of assumes, at least now that we're past the election, at some point in the relatively you know, near future, we're going to get another very large spending bill related to covid relief. Do we have any idea what that looks like yet? Well, uh, McConnell has been very adamant that the Senate will spend five or six hundred billion dollars and that's it. Pelosi uh, has wanted two to three trillion dollars, and that's been where we've been stuck at for the last couple months. Now that it's looking like we're going to have a Republican Senate, ultimately the cards are with Mitch McConnell. If he says we're not going to go over five or six hundred billion dollars, and if you don't like it, fine, we're happy to have nothing. Then it really becomes a question for the Democrats of are you going to accept five or six hundred billion or walk away and accept nothing? The five or six hundred billion would include things like an unemployment bonus of a couple hundred dollars over over current levels, some more loans to small businesses who who are struggling, as well as health funds to to try to to, to relieve the pandemic from the health front. But it's not the two to three trillion dollar bazooka that the Democrats have wanted. And that really doesn't even make sense now that the economy is recovering faster than expected and the unemployment rate is down below 7%. So really, there is a five or six hundred billion dollar plan on the table. And if the Democrats don't think that's enough, fine, then Mitch McConnell will just keep confirming judges instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, did Nancy Pelosi misplay her hand here a little bit? I mean, it, you know, it, it felt like before the election, there was some real pressure on Republicans to up these types of things because they were trying to protect the presidency and, and trying to protect their seats in the Senate. Now, you know, really, the, the Republicans are more incentivized to block this stuff uh, unless it's really a, a, a plan that they want. I mean, it seems like Pelosi, as she usually does, blew it again. Pelosi absolutely overplayed her hand. She thought she had a lot more leverage than she did. And she thought that it's not a big deal because when Democrats win the House, Senate and White House, they could just pass their three trillion dollars in January. But instead, Republicans are emboldened right now because they ran on spending much less than the Democrats. And other than the White House, they were rewarded. They had a good election. So now Republicans not only ideologically don't feel the need to put three or two or three trillion dollars into a strongly recovering economy, but the voters haven't punished them for it as well. The voters seem to be sympathetic. So at this point, again, you know, I would have suggested Pelosi take the 500 billion in September or October and then come back for more later. By not taking it, she just weakened her own hand. Mm. Brian Riedel uh, from the Manhattan Institute. What's the best place for people to find you, Brian? Uh, Manhattan-institute.org or on Twitter, Brian underscore Riedel, R-I-E-D-L. All right, Brian Riedel, thanks for coming on the program, man. Thanks. All right, back in a second. Remember the uh, TV show Celebrity Deathmatch? That was a show, wasn't it? 
like claymation characters beating each other up. Yeah, okay, I remember that. Yeah, uh, we're gonna do a little version of that here. Celebrity death match. Um, uh, which celebrity opinion are you gonna go with most? I think I know what it might be. Well, let me give them to you here. Number one, uh, Steve Kornacki. Now, Kornacki is a guy who's on MSNBC. He's like the John King of MSNBC. He gets in front of the map. He colors in the states red and blue, tells you all the percentages. Uh, You know, look, is that a sexy position? Well, you know what? Kornacki was there in 2016, and I don't think anyone thought he was sexy. Seems like when you, you know, get the result that you want on MSNBC, and then you start thinking uh, Steve Kornacki's sexy. No knock on Steve. Pretty sexy guy. But I don't know that he deserves to be on the list. By the way, he lost uh, the number one slot on the uh, sexiest list went to Michael B. Jordan. Interesting. uh, I'm sure this is totally coincidental. But of all the guy movies that I want to go to and my wife says no to, the one she always says yes to, Creed sequels. Totally fine seeing Creed in theater over and over and over again. Hmm. There's anything to learn there. Uh, next celebrity opinion, Matthew McConaughey. He could be interested in running for Texas governor. Uh, he says, uh, wouldn't be up to me. It would be up to the people more than it would be up to me. Actually, for running, it would actually be up to you. It's whether the people would say whether you get in or not. But I would say this. Look, politics seem to be a broken business to me right now. And when politics redefines its purpose, I could be a hell of a lot more interested. Now, McConaughey has a good Texas vibe. He's obviously, you know, a guy that people generally like. Kind of seems like a common sense sort of guy in some ways. Trying to suss out exactly what his uh, political leanings are are a little bit different. Uh, it's not really easy to do. Uh, he was on the Hugh Hewitt show, which again, if you're Alexandria Casio Cortez, uh, the equivalent like every other Hollywood celebrity, you're not going on the Hugh Hewitt show. So, I mean, it shows at least some friendliness to someone who could be conservative. Uh, but he hasn't been overly political in his life, I don't, uh, at least publicly. Uh, he says he's getting, uh, McConaughey says he's interested in getting behind personal values to rebind our social contracts with each other as Americans, as people again. That sounds kind of lefty, maybe a little center left right there. He goes on to say that uh, both sides of the aisle have lost trust in each other. Um, he says that I'm all for the individual. You say, OK, well, maybe maybe he's maybe a little center right. And then he says, and I think to be collective change, the individual needs to look in the mirror and say, how can I be a little better today? How can I, how can this selfish decision I want to make for myself correlate and also be the decision that is best for the most amount of people? There's a place where that decision lives all the time. It's hard to get to, but there is a place to make the decision that's best for ourselves and considerate of what the decision is for the most amount of people. So I think what you're getting there is you have a center left politician, right? Am I, am I pulling that out correctly? That's a center-left guy. Like, he's not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, and he's going to be certainly more well-spoken. He's going to know how to say words that are more than two syllables, things like that. But he doesn't seem like he's exactly uh, an, uh, an ideological conservative either. It'll be interesting to see how that flushes out. Obviously, anytime a celebrity gets in one of these races, as we've seen in recent history, uh, that uh, gives you a little bit of a, an advantage. When you have that name recognition, you can, at the very least, uh, get some votes. Did not work all that well for Kanye. I don't think Kanye cleared 200,000 votes nationwide. Now, he wasn't on all the ballots, but uh, that was a very strange. Think back of that. What a strange story that is. Kanye West, out of nowhere, starts coming out and saying after the whole George Bush doesn't care about black people thing, comes out and is all pro-Trump, wearing the Trump hat, Trump, 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 Trump all the time, taking all the arrows for being pro-Trump. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I'm going to run against him. And I guess he, he didn't win. 
far as I understand, I know they're still recounting, but I don't think Kanye West is going to be your next president. Here's the last one. And the last celebrity we'll feature here in the celebrity death match. Which one would you choose? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell uh, says, as far as I'm concerned, you should step away from saying anything so that you can still be seen by the audience and any character. If you happen to be an actor, don't talk about politics. Um, he said uh, he was talking to New York Times uh, and with his uh, partner, Goldie Hawn, made his views clear on Hollywood and politics being oil and water. I've always been someone who felt there are court jesters. Um, he uh, stars, by, this, uh, by the way, in Christmas Chronicles 2. Now, I don't know if you can watch Christmas Chronicles 2 without having seen Christmas Chronicles 1, but we can make that all right after this weekend. Um, now, that's what we do. As far as I'm concerned, you should step away from saying anything so you can still be seen by the audience and in character. I've always thought this was a really um, persuasive point for actors who are active in politics. They always get on this high horse and like, well, look, I'm a person and I, I get to have my opinions and I'm going to speak out because I think these things are important. You're right. Like you absolutely have the right to come out and run your mouth about dumb socialist policies you don't actually understand. That is totally your right as an actor. The problem here, though, is, you know, think of like Martin Sheen. He was big and active in the uh, in the Bush era and he's trying to do all these roles. And I couldn't watch the movies he was in without seeing this guy who was constantly telling me about, you know, how global warming is going to destroy the world every 10 seconds. Like you get to a point where you're you're you need to have some you, you can be a good person publicly. But when you're so active politically, it's hard to, for anyone to see you in another role. And, you know, that there is, a, I guess, a, a, a thought there as a as a citizen. You might say, well, I'm going to put that as a higher importance than my acting career. And that's fine. Doesn't mean we have to shell out 12 bucks to go see your stupid movies. That's just the way this works. You know, at some point when you're not doing your job to a high enough capacity because you feel something else is important, well, we feel that there's something else more important than seeing your dumb movies. I don't have any, I don't want you to, you do whatever you want. I'm not going to burn, I'm not going to burn your movies in the streets. I'm not going to ban your, I'm not going to try to do any of the stuff that you guys do to us. Whenever we say our opinions, you can say your opinions all you want. Congratulations about that. But I mean, it just it's it's not that I'm boycotting. I just I'm losing I mean, your job is to to be able to blend in and play a role. Right. You're supposed to be able to be convincing and, and have me sucked out of this real world into this fantasy world for whatever two hour period is going on. Well, if you can't do that anymore, I can't play along. I can't give you my cash. That's the way this works. Kurt Russell seems to understand that. He says, we're all trying to figure out what to do. Um, he says, I mean, when you look at how AMC has lost uh, so much money uh, uh, and it barely exists before it might go away, you see that the big screen and people are uh, there engaging. There's nothing like it. It makes me very melancholy to know that it could be over, talking about the uh, whole COVID collapse of the theaters. However, there's more content now than ever. And not only that, there is a place for content. We're looking at incredible talent. But the one thing I wonder about all of that is, will there be any more movie stars? That thing in the old days when there were these glamorous movie stars and people that you just couldn't wait to go see. I don't know if that'll happen again. I think the question is, will there be an arena for that? Without the arena, these movie stars don't happen. The cultural aspect doesn't happen. That is something uh, to consider. I don't know. If I'm you, I mean, look, you got the guy who's the map guy who's the sexiest person in the world. Matthew McConaughey, he was probably the sexiest person in the world another time. And he's just blabbing about politics, maybe running for governor. But you got Kurt Russell who says, I'm just going to stay out of your face. How about that? Here's my approach. I'm going to stay out of your face on politics. I love it. 
I think America loves it. Kurt Russell, you're the winner of the Celebrity Deathmatch. With the way we're spending money on COVID and everything else, I mean, probably we're all going to be living under bridges soon. And you need to have a real estate agent that can help you find the best bridge to live under. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find that person. They're going to know all the bridges. They're going to know all the underpasses. They're going to know the cool little cubby holes that someone dug out before. Uh, it's going to be great. And they're going to tell you how to do it. I will say when you, when you are moving across the country and, you know, the economy is actually in relatively good shape considering where it could have been at this moment. And we look forward here. We have the potential of, you know, vaccines and all this other stuff. Hopefully this COVID era is going to be over pretty soon. Uh, you think when that's, I, I have this, this feeling um, that when this is all over, we're going to have that sort of, we're going to have a good economic period. This might be a good time to buy uh, before it goes up. I mean, I don't know. Who knows, right? All I know is realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find a real estate agent where you can talk about your crazy ideas about what bridge you might want to live under if everything goes to crap. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to get the best agent in your area. They're already screened by realestateagentsitrust.com, so you don't have to worry about getting a crappy one. They're all good on realestateagentsitrust.com. Curious if you anticipate that this coming Congress would be your last as speaker. Well, let me just say that when that conversation took place, there was a move to put limits on the, the leadership and the chairs of committees. It never came up. They never brought it up. They said they were going to do it. They didn't do it. But I said then, what I said then is whether it passes or not, I will abide by the, uh, those limits that are there. Yes, sir. So is that, is that a sort of... Sherman-esque kind of statement here? I mean, do you No, it's that? not. It's, it's a, the statement that I made. <laughs> it's a statement that I made. And we are, uh, listen, if my husband is listening, don't let me have to be too more specific than that because uh, we never expected to have another term now. I consider this a gift. Okay, there's Nancy Pelosi saying that she's going to be Speaker of the House. And I kind of remember that too. Remember she said she wasn't going to do it again? I thought this was going to be the last time. Now, I happen to be one of the people who didn't take her seriously when she said that. Uh, and I don't know, maybe maybe she did have a qualifier on that statement. If I remember it right, like 15 people voted against her as speaker on the Democratic side. And there was a real thought of like, hey, if I can get enough of you guys to come along, give me one more term and I'll be gone next time. Well, here she is. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is never going away. Nancy Pelosi will be 115,000 years old. Uh, and still be the Speaker of the House, even if the Republicans control it. They'll give it to Nancy Pelosi. Um, you know, this is just what she does. She, when she has a chance to win a battle, she always does, like she did in that bikini contest not too long ago. Uh, the actual quote, by the way, when this uh, Photoshop was being put together was, uh, you're going to be surprised how few older women in bikinis there are on our photo service. Um, but we got the one. So lucky you, you have that visual in your head. This is the, one of those times you're just like, gosh, I make good decisions. Thank God I'm listening on podcast. I'm going to go rate five stars right now because I didn't have to see that Nancy Pelosi image. Okay, you got to get that off the screen or they're going to throw us off the air. 
Um, let me also give you a couple other uh, developments here in the uh, potential cabinet. Rahm Emanuel supposedly wants to be uh, under consideration to become Biden's transportation secretary. He's on a weird career path here. He was chief of staff and then he was like mayor of Chicago. Now he's transportation secretary. I mean, he's going to be like dog catcher, uh, talk show host. I mean, he's going to he's on the wrong trajectory for his career. And then uh, I like this. This is from Joe Biden. Another appointment that was made, uh, he's trying to make at least, um, is Michael McCabe. Now, Michael McCabe is a guy that is pissing off a lot of the environmentalists. And I kind of like that. I mean, I'm sure he's going to be really annoying once he gets uh, if he gets in there and he starts doing all this stuff. But I will say. I like that he's annoying environmentalists a little bit. Uh, had an op-ed written by Aaron Brockovich. Yes, the Aaron Brockovich about uh, who this guy is. Michael McCabe, former, former employee of Biden, former deputy, deputy EPA administrator, later jumped ship to work as a consultant on communication strategy for DuPont during a time when the chemical company was looking to fight regulations on their star chemical known as C8. The toxic man-made chemical is used in everything from waterproof clothes, stain-resistant textiles and food packaging to nonstick pans. The compound has been linked to lowered fertility, cancer, and liver damage. Whenever you're reading an environmental report, and that's what the, the word that they use, this thing has been linked to this. It means they don't have enough evidence to actually say anything's going on with them, but like someone once said it was bad, so there was a link. Tom said that chemical kills baby seals. Uh, that chemical has been linked to killing baby seals. That's how it works. Uh, this smells of the same old, same old. To quote the who, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It should go without saying that someone who advised DuPont on how to avoid regulations is not someone we want advising this new administration. There you go. Aaron Brockovich is pissed off. And when she's pissed off, Julia Roberts is going to have a job in the future. So Glint has made gold a real alternative currency. We talk about gold from time to time because it's important. Uh, you know, it's been this, the gold standard for you know, basically since the beginning of humanity. Talking about how all the spending is going on in Washington. Uh, COVID, we're going to see another 500, 600. You, you heard Brian Riedel talking about this earlier. There's a lot of money that's going to be spent. What do you think is going to happen to the value of the American dollar when that happens? That's why people invest in gold in the first place. But it can be arduous. There can be big fees. There can be uh, trouble turning it back into uh, spendable currency when you need it. Not with GlintPay. GlintPay.com slash stew. You can invest in gold. They'll hold it for you in a secure vault uh, overseas in Switzerland. And then you can spend it. However you want with your uh, MasterCard. It's really easy. Glintpay.com slash stew. This is new and it's a really, really great idea. G-L-I-N-T pay.com slash stew. Slash stew part of the address is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Glintpay.com slash stew. If you're on YouTube and you made it this far, make sure to click like right now. I've got this email in from uh, Nicole. She says, Dear Stu, would you rather be stuck on a deserted island with Andrew Cuomo or Gavin Newsom? After that hideous news conference with Cuomo, I'm picking Newsom as long as he wears a mask and eats outdoors. It's as if California and New York are in an abusive relationship with their governors, but they lack the courage and resources to break up. And pretty much outlines it well. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, I think I would... You know, you think I would probably I mean, there's no one I can stand less than Andrew Cuomo. As you know, Andrew Cuomo is awful dot com. 
And uh, I, so I don't, I'd have to pick Gavin Newsom. Now, there's the outside shot that Gavin Newsom is a serial killer. Uh, he certainly looks like a serial killer uh, from American Psycho. But honestly, if you're on a, Gavin, a, a desert island with Gavin Newsom, you probably want him to kill you to get it over with faster. So I'm going Gavin Newsom, solid victory here over Andrew Cuomo, uh, who, by the way, is awful. Don't forget to get your Nancy Pelosi pens before they run out. Uh, we got the new batch in for the holidays. The replica of her pen that she signed the impeachment with, except it says sucks after her last name. We'll see you tomorrow.